Y'all pray with me. God, I just thank you for this morning. Thank you for this incredible weekend with these students. I thank you for bringing each and every person here this morning. Father, we are just awed by your amazing grace. Father, we just come to you, we adore you, and we ask that in these moments as we open your word, that you would pierce our hearts, that you would prepare us for the week that lays ahead, that you would draw us closer to you. God, I just ask that the words I speak in the next few moments, the words that are of you, that they would be heard and remembered, and they would linger, and anything I say that is not, would be forgotten and fall to the wayside. God, I pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So this feeling of being stuck, it's my least favorite feeling in the world, and I think the first time I really felt stuck was when I was a little boy and I went camping and it was cold and I was in my sleeping bag all tucked in, jawstring pulled, all of that wrapped up in a little mummy bag. Went to sleep, woke up the next morning, and nature called, but the drawstring was stuck in the zipper, and I couldn't get out. I was stuck, and it was panic. I hate the feeling of being stuck. Perhaps you know another feeling of being stuck, being stuck with your car. Maybe, I know I heard of a story of even someone being stuck this morning in the parking lot. So, stuck. It happens in mud, and for Stephanie and I, we, when we were in China this summer, uh, a couple summers ago, that summer we spent there, there was... Uh, one of our first experiences was going up this dirt road up a mountain to go to a village to do a vi- uh, go to do a vision clinic to help screen some kids for vision so we could help them get glasses that type of a thing. As we're heading up this steep mountain road, I was nervous about the drop off, not about the road conditions. It had been raining and all that sort of stuff, and so we were sliding around. And I was looking as there were several hundred foot drop off on one side, but. What we should have been concerned about and what happened was our SUV getting stuck in the mud. And so before we made it to the village, all of a sudden, we weren't going anywhere. So our host and us, we got out and we walked the rest of the way up to the village. We were stuck. So we went up there, we did our vision clinic, and now you're stuck in the middle of that story. All right. And so... 2 Kings 22, turn to you in your Bibles, the 2 Kings 22. We're going to talk about this king. His name is King Josiah. Now, King Josiah, to give you a little bit, to get you, put you in the right place in Israel's history, is that Israel as a nation has split into two, Israel and Judah, and Israel is no longer they're disobeyed God, and then outside nations have come in and destroyed them. All is left is Judah. And so you have King Josiah. King Josiah 
was the great-grandson of Hezekiah, a king who followed God. But then his grandfather, Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, he was one of Israel's worst kings, one of Judah's worst kings ever. We're told that he even sacrificed one of his children to an idol. He set up idols everywhere. And then Josiah's father, well, we didn't even really get a chance to see what was going to happen with him. He probably would have followed his father Manasseh, but he was assassinated by his army after two years of ruling as king. So at eight years of age, Josiah becomes king of Judah. What a responsibility for a young boy. And we're told in 2 Chronicles 34 through 35, which also records Josiah, his story there, that at 16 years of age, so after ruling for eight years, he has some sort of experience. We're not given the details, but he starts to follow God. His heart is grabbed by God, and he becomes a follower of God in a way like Hezekiah, in a way like King David. And so he becomes passionate about trying to clean up his country from idol worship. And so as he starts this process, that's where we see in 2 Kings 22. He's here in 2 Kings 22, we are told, in his 18th year reign. So when he's 26 years old, it finally comes time that he is going to start working on getting the temple straight. They've been setting up idols and all sorts of other crazy stuff going on in the temple. He had raised some money. And he said, all right, now's the time. And so he told uh, his, one of his attendants or whatever, Shaphan, son of Azialiah and grandson of Meshulam, some awesome names there, the court secretary to go and get this money. And he told him, talk to the priest and start repairing the temple. And so as they're doing this temple repair, they find something. Now, this is startling to me. It should be startling to us. They find the law of God. Wait a minute. You mean that they have been going without Scripture, without God's Word for years, for decades, for generations? Yes. And they found it tucked away in the back corner like some old blueprint or old VBS curriculum, the actual Word of God. And so the priest brings it to King Josiah and says, look what we have found. And so the king says, let's read it. And so here in verse 9, it says, uh, actually verse 10, he says, Hilkiah, the priest has given me a scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king. And when the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. And so then the king turns to Hilkiah the priest and he says, all right, we've got to check this thing out. We've got to figure out what's going on here. So he sends Hilkiah to the temple where there was a prophet. Her name was Huldah. And she had a reputation of being a woman of God and having a really close relationship with God. And so if you wanted to know who, what God was thinking about something, you went to her. She had that kind of reputation. And so The priest, Hilkiah, goes to Huldah and has this conversation. It says, we found this book, we've read it, we're convicted. And then she gives this word from God. 
verse 15, she says, The Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Go back and tell the man who sent you, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this city and its people. All the words written in the scroll that the king of Judah has read will come true. For my people have abandoned me and offered sacrifices to pagan gods, and I am very angry with them for everything they have done. My anger will burn against this place, and it will not be quenched. But go to the king of Judah who sent you to seek the Lord and tell him this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the message you have just heard. You were sorry and humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I said against this city and its people. This land would be cursed and become desolate. You tore your clothing in despair. You wept before me in repentance. And I have indeed heard you, says the Lord. So I'll not send the promised disaster until you have died and been buried in peace. You will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on the city. The word of God was discovered. The nation of Israel had been stuck. Josiah was brought to tears. In grief, he tore his clothes. And here, I think, as we see the nation of Israel and they're stuck, and they're stuck in the relationship with God, I think it brings to mind for me three different ruts that we so often find ourselves stuck in when we're trying to grow in our relationship with God. And some of these, maybe we see them in extreme in Israel and in their nation, but in our own hearts, they're there. They may look a little different, but this is what I hear in this story. The first comes from Titus 1.16. I think Titus, he captured this thought, and that is the rut of professing faith but taking no action. Titus 1.16 says, Such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. They are detestable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. The rut of professing but taking no action. This is the rut of no commitment, saying I am a follower of Christ, but then that has no impact at all on my life. And so in the extreme form, we know what that looks like. But subtly, let's think about that for a minute. Because I think that's a very convicting thing about how many days, how easy it is to wake up in a rush, run out the door, go to work, take care of business, come home, scramble around, get some dinner, do what needs to be done around the house and go to bed. And before I realize it, I professed that day to be a follower of Christ. And it had no bearing on that day. The rut of professing but making no commitment. The next one is this rut of incomplete worship. Israel and Judah, they were ripped up and down by the minor and the major prophets in the Old Testament about this rut, about this plateau of deciding that you're going to worship God, you're going to go through the motions, so you're going to profess that you are a follower of God, but then you're going to show up at the temple, you're going to do your sacrifices just like God told you to, but you're still not taking care of those who are hungry. There are people in your city who still don't have shelter. There are people still among you who are cheating out people. They're taking advantage of people. They're voiceless who don't have a voice. And these prophets, 
generation after generation of these prophets said, I don't want your sacrifices. I want you to take care of the least of these. I want you to actually live out my love. I actually want you to take this action. And no point is that any clearer than with Jesus. I love this story of Matthew 9 where Jesus is walking down the street. He encounters a tax collector by the name of Matthew. And Jesus gets in trouble for this encounter because he's talking to Matthew. And Matthew and him have this conversation. They decide to throw a dinner party. So he goes to Matthew's house, and Matthew invites all his friends. Well, who's Matthew's friends? They're other tax collectors and the scum of the earth. At least that's what the Pharisees call them. They're these scoundrels, sinners, those who've been pushed to the outside because they don't have the right things in order in the temple. And Jesus eats with them. And then the Pharisees come to him and say, What are you doing eating with such scum? And Jesus says, It's the sick who need a doctor, not the well. And so he pushes back on these Pharisees who thought they had everything figured out. But then there's these people in their society who have been pushed to the wayside for one reason or another. In this case, it's because they were deemed too bad to be involved in the society, to be even to be dealt with, to be talked to, to be friends with. Also, we know from the other encounters with Pharisees that there was diseases that were outcasts, that there were people, there was things you didn't touch, you didn't eat, you didn't do, because, well, that's just not good. But Jesus touched the lepers. He healed the blind. He cast out the demons. He went to those. Because worship has to involve action. Worship has to involve, like we've talked about this weekend, being on mission with God. And so we can get stuck in this rut of going through the motions, but not actually living out God's love. And the the last rut I want us to kind of point out this morning is the one we saw in the story with King Josiah. That you actually set up an idol. Now we may not be... About to go roll out, everybody in their car, in your trunk of your car, you got a golden calf, and we're going to put it on the stage after the service, okay? And then, no, we probably aren't going to do that anytime soon. But, what, this is what we've pushed the students to think about this weekend, is placing a lesser king on God's throne of our heart. That idol worship doesn't always look like some statue that we bow down to or some pole on top of a mountain that you bow down to. Sometimes it looks like a commitment that's placed before God. And that's what had happened with Israel. They had lost God as being priority number one. They had fallen into this rut. They had gotten stuck. So this morning, as we look at these three ruts, we see... And King Josiah, how do we move forward in our relationship with God? We reach plateaus. We reach points where we don't feel like we're growing anymore. How do we move forward? I think it's just amazing at this point to just stop and think about the very thing that was the catalyst for King Josiah. For, from the time he was 16 
to the time he was 26. So for 10 years, he tried to figure it out. He tried to turn his nation around. Then he found the Word of God. He encountered the Word of God, and it tore him up, ripped his clothes in grief. And I, I think that going off a of scholar, scholars say that probably the scroll that was found was Deuteronomy, Moses' last sermon to the nation of Israel. And in that, in, ver- in chapter 17, there is this address directly to the future kings of Israel. And it said one of the things is that the king, when a king came into power, he was to handwrite himself his own scroll of the law of God. And then he was to keep that with him at all times and read it daily. In other words, the king was to know the word of God. So can you imagine as King Josiah had been trying for 10 years to figure out how do we get back closer to God? And then all of a sudden, here it was. All the things that God said. This is how you approach me. This is how you be. And it's your responsibility as king to know all of this, to lead the people this way. What started King Josiah in helping his nation not be stuck was the word of God. So how do we move forward in our life? Our spiritual life impacts every area. If we're stuck in our relationship with God, we're going to be stuck in all areas. And it's time for a shakeup. I have this memory as a child, and it's one of those weird childhood memories where it gets fuzzy, so I can't remember if I was just told the story a bunch of times or if I was there because they kind of blur the lines. So I'll just own that up front. But the story goes something like this. Out hunting with my dad in the cotton fields near Lubbock. It rained, one of those rare times where it rains out there. And we were in our big brown van. We had a big, like, conversion-sized van. It was brown. And we were out hunting and going along. All of a sudden, boom, just back tires sunk in. Dad backs it up, tries to get it unstuck. We're in the middle of nowhere. There's not, like, a tow truck or anything. What are we going to do? And then his friend, Charles, we called him Chuckles because he was kind of jovial. And... He got out and he said, hey, Ken, I'm going to take care of this. You just floor it when I tell you. He walks around to the back of the van and just picks it up and walks it over to where there's a little bit of patch of dry gun and says, all right, gun it. And then he drops it and gets us out of that hole. Now, I didn't tell you that Chuckles, he was a lineman in college. And he was one of the biggest men, still one of the biggest men I've ever met in my life. So for him, that was not an abnormal feat of strength, but it was the hard way to get a vehicle unstuck because back that day in China when Stephanie and I were stuck on that mountain road, I learned how difficult Chuckles Way was not the right way. This is how you get down a muddy path because after we got done with our vision clinic in the village, the, the, some of the school teachers there were going to take us to a restaurant that was down at the bottom of the hill And so they got us in their vehicle, and we drove to where ours was stuck. And we encountered, before we even got there, a couple of patches of mud. And so this is the way they dealt with it. Everybody gets out except for the driver and stands across from each other along where the mud is. 
The driver floors it towards the mud. As you hit the mud, everybody starts pushing on the vehicle as hard as they can, and it just starts rocking back and forth so that the edges of the tire catch, and it just goes right on through. So that we finally make it down to our SUV, we get in it, do the same thing, and it backs right on out, and they keep going, and we go on down to lunch. To get traction, it took a shakeup. To move forward, it took shaking things up. And so in our spiritual lives, we need a shake-up. We need to shake things up. We need to get things fresh again. We need to be able to see the forest through the trees. So look back with me at 2 Kings 22. We're going to see here how King Josiah, if you look back over that passage, 22 and 23, we're not going to read two chapters of Scripture this morning, so I'll just kind of summarize it this. So Josiah's shakeup went something like this. He reads the Word of God, and he is moved. He tears his clothes in grief. Then Josiah tears down idols. He goes on this campaign. He tears them down in the temple. He tears them down across the countryside. Everywhere there's temples set up to idols. He tears them down. He takes the priest of all these idols, rounds them up, takes care of business with them. And then he takes the nation of Judah and he says, we will worship God. And he restores the priest and he restores the sacrificial system in Judah. And that's the way, because that's the way they had, that's the law that they had of how they worshiped. That was his shakeup. His shakeup was to clear out the old way of doing things and bring in a new way of doing things. The shakeup we are looking for is an internal one. We need a fresh perspective. We need traction to continue to grow closer to God. So, how do we get outside of our van and push it side to side so that we can move forward? I think the answer starts all the way back in the Garden of Eden. God created for six days, and on the seventh, he rested. That's what we're told. I think that's so significant that we hear God created for six days, on the seventh, he rested. We dig spiritual ruts when we don't have rest, when we don't take Sabbath. Pastor April Yamasaki, she's a pastor in Toronto, she calls these critical moments of rest Sacred pauses. She even wrote a book about it. These are the moments where we break our attention from our day-to-day work, labor, whatever tasks those are, where we shift our attention from this world and we turn our attention to God. We spend just a few seconds, just a few moments in our day And we focus our attention on God. And whenever our day is made up with these interruptions, these sacred pauses, it begins to shift us. It begins to rock us, shake us up, and help us move forward. So Sabbath, what is that? Sabbath is more than just a day of the week where we take time and come to church. Sabbath is more than just physical rest. It's spiritual rest. It's being still with God. If you think about the, tire, the effects of being tired, making poor decisions, maybe driving off a road, your immune system breaking down, if you don't take care of your body, all these things happen. In the same way, if we don't have Sabbath, we don't have spiritual rest, the same thing happens. We just, 
and get stuck. So how, how do we go about getting this rest? Well, I think, uh, I, think we, I think we have a pretty good idea when we see God in flesh walking around on earth and see how Jesus took care of business. Mark, in Mark 6, it shows... In this one chapter, there's this season of Jesus' life. It almost reads like it could be one day. It's longer than one day. And Jesus, it's just, it's like that horribly, horrible day. Just bad, long day for him. Jesus has been teaching all around the nation. And he finally comes home. And it's not a ticker tape parade. No. In fact, no one wants to hear what he has to say. The same things he's been preaching everywhere He gets rejected for them at home. No one wants any part of his message there. And then he sends out the 12 to go and spread the word far. But what does that mean? He means he's alone doing ministry by himself. He doesn't have his friends. He doesn't have his companions. He's alone. And so then Jesus gets word about this time, in the way it's recorded in Mark, that his cousin, his friend, His ministry partner, John the Baptist, has been beheaded by the king. Grief. And so finally, Jesus gets to see his closest friends. They come back from their long business trip, and all they want to do is catch up with each other. They go head off to kind of find a place that they can talk, and there is a crowd of people. It says that Jesus was moved in his gut. That he saw them and he saw sheep without a shepherd. So he stopped, he taught, he healed, and he fed 5,000 people. And then, at the end of that day, he finally found Sabbath. Jesus didn't just ignore it and keep on going. He still went about his plan. And he headed on up the mountain and he rested with God. So if... Jesus needed rest. If Jesus needs Sabbath to keep moving forward, keep doing ministry, how much more is that true for us? So there's two important things I want us to latch onto here from Jesus' response to this hard season of life and King Josiah's response to the Word of God. The first, it comes without saying, I've said it already several times this morning, is that we need daily time with God. We have to cultivate spiritual practices. If you look across Scripture, there is so many farming metaphors. And I, I, just think, I think it's partly because they're agrarian society. And I think it's partly because it, it's such a good metaphor for our spiritual life. You think about cultivating spiritual practices. You think about a farmer throwing out seed, laying out seed. The farmer doesn't cause the seed to grow. The seed grows because of the earth, because of the way God's made things, because of God. The farmer's responsibility is to tend the, the crop, to keep it watered, keep it fertilized, all of these things. And so by cultivating our spiritual practices, our relationship with God grows. And that simply starts by taking that time each and every day. There's an ancient uh, Christian writing called The Cloud of Unknowing. The author's anonymous, written at least like a thousand years ago. It says, it only takes a scrap of time to turn towards God. So just taking these moments each day, 
to cultivate our spiritual life, to cultivate our relationship with God, to turn our attention, our focus. A lot of times as Christians, we think that the ultimate goal is to get to heaven. And while that's our ultimate trajectory, I think if that's our only aim, we're going to miss out on a whole lot. Our ultimate goal of our faith is this relationship with God, is being at rest in God. Being at rest in God is faith. God's rest is our promise for today and is a taste of the eternal rest that we will experience in heaven. So taking time, spending time with God each day is almost like heaven practice. So not only do we need these daily times with God, but I think the other thing we see in Jesus and we see in King Josiah is that, and we see this in the ancient laws of Israel, We need a cycle of Sabbath rest. I want you to think about this for a minute with me. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus 25, it lays out Sabbath laws. And the interesting things about these laws is it's not about how to set up the temple, when you're supposed to go to the temple, what your sacrifices are, all these things. Those are other laws. Instead, the Sabbath laws all deal with restoration. So, Sabbath. There's supposed to be a, I want you to think about this. We're talking about a cycle here. So, every seven years, it says that you are to have a Sabbath year. So, what that looks like is you don't do anything in your fields. So, think about that. In a society where everything you have to live on comes from what you grow out of the ground, I don't want you to plant anything, God says. Whatever grows, you can eat, but don't store anything. I will take care of you for that year. You need a year to step back and realize, I am God, you are not, and you should trust me. And then he pushed it even further, God does. And he says, okay, so you do that every seven years, and then you do that seven times, and on that 50th year, it's going to be the year of Jubilee. And this is where it really pushes people's buttons, because that year of Jubilee is like extreme Sabbath. It means all slaves are free, all debts are canceled, all land is returned to the original family owners. That's crazy. And it's in this rhythm that they learn to continually trust God and continually get unstuck If things are continually being changed every seven years, something's going to change. So they had this cycle. God set up this cycle to continually to remind them of who they were to worship. So if we're going to make steady progress with God, we need to have a rhythm of stepping away from the daily pattern of our lives and having those sacred pauses and letting God reorient us. And so a rhythm of examine. Remember these three ruts we talked about. The rut of no commitment, the rut of no mercy, the rut of a lesser king. We have to pause and let the Holy Spirit convict us. If we're going to move forward, we have to be convicted by the Holy Spirit where we've gone off stray. This could come in so many forms. In our regular daily time, it could be simple as the time that we're sitting still, whether that's in the office in the car waiting, waiting to pick up our kid. 
waiting for a fish to bite or a deer to walk by the blind. But that moment, that still moment to focus your heart on the one true king. But as we saw in the Bible, it's clear that we also need to have a way to create seasons of reflection and examine. Times that we specifically step back and evaluate all our motives and let the Holy Spirit do His work. And so, when you think about this, what are some things we could do? It could be finding a spiritual retreat to attend that would push you, challenge you, or Asking a group of Christians to surround you and to sit down with you for an afternoon and tell you what they see in your behavior. What is your behavior saying to them about your relationship with God? What are they hearing in that? Or going on a mission trip to a foreign country, to a foreign culture, so you can experience a different way Christians do life. Or joining an in-depth Bible study that really would challenge you. These are just only a few ways that we can create these rhythms, these regular rhythms of these sacred pauses that would take us out of our ordinary and shake things up. In orienteering, if you're trying to do an orienteering competition or you're trying to find your way on a map, you have a compass, you get your bearing, and you begin to walk, but whenever you come to an obstacle that you have to deviate around. You have to continuously take bearings so you know how to get back to that line, to get back to where you are walking. Just a little deviation can end up in being way off. And so in the same way, we need these moments where we just stop moving and reorient to make sure our bearing is where it is where it needs to be. Josiah encountered the word of God for the first time when he was 26 years old, and it completely undid him. His heart was so broken, the only thing he could do was tear his clothes. When was the last time we let God's word pierce our hearts like that? When was the last time we felt that much emotion when we read God's word? We have to take this time to encounter God. There isn't There's no such thing as a drive-by kind of faith. We need these regular shake-ups. Otherwise, we're going to and get stuck. We have to stop spinning our tires and digging the ruts deeper and deeper. We have to get out, walk around, and do something different. We have to shake things up to get out of our ruts. So I want to finish with these few questions. What ruts are you stuck in today? Are you stuck in the ways you approach God? Are you stuck in the ways you live out God's love or don't live it out? Or do your commitments in life, have you backed into a corner where your rut is putting someone or something else on God's throne? But let's take a minute, let's step back and reflect. We need a great shakeup. Let me pray for us. God, we just thank you for this morning that we could come together and hear King Josiah's story of a young man who was just moved by you, Father, that you put together his life in such a way you've brought him to encountering your word and just changed the way he lived life. 
And God, I just pray that each of us would encounter you in such a powerful way that we would be shooken up to our very core. Whether we don't know who you are, we don't have a relationship with you, or we have been following you for decades. I pray that you would just shake us, that you would just shake us up. Give us a fresh perspective, a fresh passion, a fresh hunger for you, Father. That we would walk into this week passionate, excited, ready for what you have for us. That we would be bold and courageous to take that step. To live out loud and be on mission with you, King Jesus. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.